The sooner that we realize that this is uh, nothing but uh, games of thrones, rotating thrones, people that wish to sit on a throne, people that just want power, the sooner we realize it. And I know many of us are like, but we do realize it. Mm, if we realized it, then we wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, because, uh, you know, innately, people take advantage of the fact that. Um, we believe that all people are good at first instance. And that is the advantage that others have over you. Uh, that uh, you innately take people at their face value. And that's how it moves on. So today is March 3rd. Anybody else feeling like, damn, it's already hump day? I do. And it felt as if the morning, uh, maybe it was because I was productive, but it felt like it just flew by even though I got a lot of stuff done. I don't know if I'm the only one experiencing that, but I thought that was pretty awesome. So there's a lot we can talk about. There's things we can talk about how now they're saying that you're allowed, you are allowed to be in closed space with no masks if you have the vaccine. Can you see it coming? Can you see it coming? Oh, I think it was a month ago today that, <laughs> that I was having this conversation with Millie Weaver over the phone. And I was like, damn, uh, they're going to have those health passports. You're not going to get a job if you don't have a vaccine. They're going to push that through. That's their plan. The thing is, but we were going to throw a wrench into it. And that's exactly what we're doing. But we have to get people to that point. We need to get people on board with understanding what's up. That's it. Uh, people need to understand exactly how who, what, when, and where. Um, but uh, today, I'll tell you, I stopped into two places. One, I had to go get a hard drive. So I went to Micro Center. I wore zero masks, nothing. And then I also went to Target. I had to go pick up dish soap. So I go into Target, and the lady standing there in her getup, do you have a mask? I was like, does yours not work? She looked at me. I was like, I have a health condition. And I just walked off. Nobody said anything to me. I think not having the mask out in the open and just not giving two diddly squats to what they say and just walk on in. Nobody bothers you. Nobody said, hey, nobody said anything. You know, they just left me alone. And I was just going about my business. Yes, Tajay, because I'm extra too. That's a joke. My daughter and I say we're going to be going to Target uh, because we're extra. Uh, so today, uh, regardless of uh, what is going on tomorrow, we're going to be hitting some hard news. I want to stay away from what's in the mainstream media right now. This week, that's the one thing you don't want to look at. Uh, Christopher Ray, you know, he gave his testimony yesterday, blatantly lied. Okay. Uh, you know, they're constantly saying it's a conspiracy theory and we're all just like, um, 
I mean, we could just point to one person, John Sullivan. There's like tons of others, but please don't watch the news. It's just going to make you angry. And this is why it's going to make you angry. I'm going to show you one bit of news before we get into some stuff today that I wanted you to um, um, learn about. Well, revisit. I'm sure all of us have learned about this, but I think it's time to revisit. So here's a report by Chris on um, Newsmax talking about Cuomo. It's really important you listen to this. If it has volume, That's here we go. Are now warning the socialists in the Biden administration that their illegal immigration promoting policies will ruin the United States and the Democrat Socialist Party itself. We'll have more on that during the program. Meanwhile, despite the best efforts of the basket of bias press, the myriad scandals surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo keep multiplying. A third accuser has come forward to allege inappropriate behavior from COVID Cuomo as it pertains to women. Who's worse, Cuomo or the press that tried to protect him? That's the question we confront in tonight's preamble. In an inspired moment, Ben Dominich of The Federalist coined a new term while speaking with Brett Baer. He was taking note of the breathtaking effort by some in the liberal media to cover up for the embattled New York governor, COVID Cuomo. Cuomo sexuals consider conversion therapy. Uh, the number of people who fell in love with Ann Cuomo uh, last year because of his demeanor on uh, COVID issues, I think are now questioning their, uh, their blatant support given all the allegations and the questions about his own policies. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Cuomo sexuals. These are the people who propped up Cuomo, who said he was everything that President Trump isn't, said that Americans could trust him with the China virus, just not the nation's daughters, as it turns out. We here on the Chris Salcedo Show wanted to remind all of you who these Cuomo sexuals are, these people who tried to hide COVID Cuomo's disastrous decision to send China virus positive patients into nursing homes, needlessly killing thousands of people. We wanted to remind you of the people trying to hide the flaws of the thug and predator Mr. Cuomo was turning out to be. Here are the Cuomo sexuals. How would you contrast Cuomo and President Trump's handling of the crisis? Truth versus mendacity. Governor Cuomo has become a national leader. For a lot of people, Andrew Cuomo has become the leader of the Democratic Party. He is conveying incredible strength. You spoke to National Guard troops today in a stirring speech that, if I wasn't listening carefully, I thought you would sending soldiers off to war. Governor Cuomo, yeah. I think, is, is, is one of the heroes on, on the front lines. With all of this adulation that you're getting for doing your job, are you thinking about running for president? Dealing with hardship actually makes you stronger. That's what Governor Cuomo said earlier today. That's what I'm going to go teach my kids right now at home. Yes. Go ahead and teach your kids. Okay, so first of all, let's not forget, it was the same idiots promoting Michael Avenatti for president, right? And in what universe do people like Brian Settler have kids? Little Brian's still under the religion of Governor Cuomo. As a quick reminder, it took months of zero coverage from the basket of bias press to get here. In that time, we in the conservative media reported on Cuomo's deadly policies during the China virus crisis. We reported how he did the, hit the real numbers in an effort to hide the full scope of what some are calling a crime. 
We reported how COVID Cuomo threatened a member of his own party when that person called for an accounting of COVID Cuomo's lies. And we reported the first allegations of sexual harassment then, and then only then did the New York Times report a second accuser. Would we have had to wait months on the left-wing press if similar accusations were leveled against any Republican? We all know the answer is no. No. See, see, I'm, I'm, I'm really upset about this. So they're going to push him out because he's a pervert, right? And not hold him accountable for the crimes that he's committed. Him and de Blasio, regardless if they're fighting amongst each other and they seem to have beef, whatever that may be, um, inflated the numbers, killed people, murder. It's called murder, right? In order to be able to access COVID funds because the state's broke. New York City is bankrupt. If anyone has invested in municipal bonds in New York City, they're toast. There's nothing. Nothing. Absolutely zero dollars. Nothing. They're so in the red, China's jealous. That's how red they are. And so they created this facade of this excessive need of money for COVID to cover up their debts. Let's not forget millions and millions of dollars. De Blasio's wife has been funneling from some made-up charity that does stuff. And now we're going with the whole Me Too bullshit. Chris Cuomo, one of Governor Cuomo's biggest cheerleaders addressed the myriad scandals plaguing his brother on his CNN show. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on with my brother. And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover. Wait, he was able to cover it when his brother was being praised, but he's not able to cover it when he's being attacked. I see. They have covered it extensively, and they will continue to do so. I have uh -huh. always cared very deeply about these issues, and profoundly so. Cared so much, he just hasn't talked about it. See, that's just it, Chris Cuomo. CNN hasn't been covering the story. Rather, they and other liberal biased cable channels have been working to cover up this story. Instead, choosing to undertake their traditional activities of being unfair to conservatives and certain Republicans. This was illustrated at CPAC when a member of the Federalist confronted CNN's liberal opinion host, Jimmy Acosta. When's anyway, CNN going to deal sure with Cuomo? we are covering it. I don't no, know you're not. Not. no, you're not. You're not. Well, you're not. Okay, we agree to disagree. You no, we don't our, agree to disagree. You're not covering Cuomo. I'm sorry, but well, what do you do think about, what, what, so, what do you think about it? What do you have to say about Cuomo? I'm here to do a job right now. Oh, I'm oh, here oh. to talk to you. You have plenty to say about Trump. Nothing to say about Cuomo? I'm here to do a job. What do you have to say about Cuomo? Nothing? Nothing, right? You have nothing to say about Andrew Cuomo. The emperor of New York, you have nothing to say. A whole lot of nothing from CNN and little Jimmy Acosta. Folks, isn't Jimmy Acosta White House press? Why is he now at CPAC? Why is he not in the White House press pool? Does he have some safeguards to just hang out wherever President Trump is? That's a question everyone should ask themselves. The Chris Alcedo show 
is a conservative opinion program. We take the news of the day and provide commentary. I believe what we do here is far more informative than anything being put on by MSNBC or CNN. But we, the Chris Salcedo Show, we're not news. We focus on news stories that reveal how depraved and anti-American the left wing in this country has become. But we're opinion. Conversely, CNN and MSNBS, they are channels that are populated mostly with liberal opinion programming. They focus on hurting conservatives and Republicans who stand in the way of their left-wing advocacy of government domination of all Americans' lives. But they too are opinion. Here's the difference. The Chris Salcedo Show will tell you the truth about who we are. CNN and MSNBS will not. Even though they are liberal opinion, they will claim with a straight face to be news. MSNBS. I like that. I really do. They lie to their audience every day on that score. They are doing real damage to this country, perpetuating that singular lie. Someone should call Anna Eschew and Jerry McInerney, the members of Congress, who are trying to silence free speech under the guise of stopping, quote, misinformation. Hiding COVID Cuomo's mounting sexual harassment charges, his threats, and a cover-up surrounding the deaths of thousands of seniors sounds like a textbook misinformation campaign to me. But somehow, I don't think shutting down CNN and MSNBC was what these little totalitarians had in mind. But back to my central question. Who's worse, Cuomo or the press trying to cover up for him? I find it indicting that the press couldn't be bothered to break away from the Cuomo worship after his decisions that led to thousands of elderly people dying in nursing homes. But it took a slang of one of the left's sacred cows, harassment of women, to get the media's attention on Cuomo. To be clear, the Chris Salcedo Show finds both the unnecessary killing of senior citizens and the harassment of women wrong. Uh, we know he's a pervert. You know how he is. Do you know who I am? Do you have any idea who I am? Homosexual. I like that. Where did I see that? I saw that somewhere. Homosexual. <laughs> Guarantee you that his brother has charges like that too, lingering somewhere. Maybe silence. Did we ever get, you know, any uh, big reveal on the whole slush fund? that people in the Senate and Congress have to um, shut their Me Too's up. Hmm. That would be interesting to see why we can't see the slush fund that is funded with our tax dollars, right? It would be very interesting. So today, I want to take you on a trip down memory lane uh, per the plague. And specifically, um, a one village that survived the plague that they first thought was anthrax, turned out it wasn't anthrax. Um, and um, it's kind of interesting what they have to say um, on this. I, I, I personally think that um, it was uh, it was fascinating to see how, some people, um, a whole village survived. So I, I think I want to start with that because I don't 
I don't believe a lot of people know about this and that there was uh, one village that had survived the Black Plague. Very new avenue of research, the possibility that genes protected some people from the plague. The samples were analyzed by a London team headed by Dr. David Goldstein. Let's imagine that in fact, the, the Delta 32 mutation does confer some resistance to the plague. But we know that Eam was hit very hard by the plague. If we now have today available descendants of, of, of that population, then if the Delta 32 mutation conferred uh, resistance, some resistance to the plague, then the descendants of this village should be enriched for that mutation because those individuals that had the mutation would be the ones that would have survived. The Eam experiment could only work if the villagers could prove they were direct descendants from the survivors of the plague. O'Brien met them to analyze their family trees. Well, we're, what we're curious about is to see whether or not the record of the survivors of the plague has been handed down in your genes. Joan, you trace back here to the Blackwells. This is me here. My mum and dad. It goes all the way back through the, the Barber family yeah. to the Blackwells, right the way through. And Thomas Barber married Hannah Blackwell, up to Robert Blackwell and Ruth Sellers, and right the way back to the survivors of the plague, Francis Blackwell and Margaret Blackwell. Margaret Blackwell's remarkable recovery from the plague was for centuries attributed to drinking bacon fat. But was there a more scientific explanation? John Hancock is a direct descendant of Elizabeth Hancock, whose husband and six of her children fell victim to the plague. No explanation has ever been given for why she alone managed to escape it. Could it have been genetic resistance? If it was a gene that protected the people of Eam from the plague, how could it keep out such a deadly disease? Dr. Rick Titball has been trying to find the answer to that question by exploring the way the plague bacteria attacks the cells of the human body. We know that for many microorganisms which cause disease, there's a very specific interaction between the microorganism and the host, a gateway that allows entry of the microorganism into host cells. When the plague bacteria gets into the blood, the body sends an army of white blood cells to destroy them. But plague outwits the immune system. It gets inside the white blood cells, the very cells sent to kill it, and hijacks them for its own ends. It uses them to hitch a ride to the lymph nodes, the center of the body's defense network. Here it breaks out and attacks the immune system giving the victim little chance of survival. It was this takeover of the immune system that made plague so uniquely destructive. The theory was that a gene like Delta 32 might block the crucial gateway into the human cells, thereby blocking the plague bacteria from entering the body. Three weeks after the samples were collected at Eam, the first results were in. 
is clear evidence of Delta 32. So these are the EAM, EAM traces that you've got up here, and that's 190. So how this works is that you focus in on a particular part of the gene, and, and here you see an individual with two copies of the Delta 32 mutation. Uh, in total, the gene was present in 14% of the EAM descendants. O'Brien's hunch had paid off. The Delta 32 gene was clearly visible in Eam. But what was the significance of 14%? And was it a legacy of the plague? The only way to find out was to compare the Eam results with other areas. O'Brien put together an international team of scientists to map the levels of the gene across the world. As the results began to trickle in, an extraordinary picture emerged. He looked at data from Africa, South America, and the Far East. There was no Delta 32. O'Brien sensed that he was onto something big. When you get trail that you pick up, you sniff at it like a bloodhound, and as you get closer and closer, you can almost taste the answer that's coming out. And when we began to unravel the secrets behind Delta 32, we became convinced that there was an answer, and I really wanted to be the person that was there when we find out what happened. Completing his search for the gene worldwide, O'Brien made an exciting discovery. The levels of the gene found at Eam were only matched in other parts of Europe along the roots of the Black Death. Mutations like Delta 32 are basically genetic mistakes which die out unless they give people a strong advantage in survival. For the levels of the gene to be as high as they were across Europe, that advantage must have been stunning. Well, by now, we were absolutely convinced that Delta 32 was extremely unusual, that it had been risen in European ancestors to a very high frequency, very rapidly. And the only explanation that fit all the data was some sort of raging infectious disease outbreak, which could have killed off millions of people throughout the area where this event was taking place. O'Brien was now convinced that the raging infectious disease outbreak was a Black Death. The geography of Delta 32 matched the spread of the plague precisely. But one further piece of the jigsaw remained, the date. If O'Brien and Goldstein could pinpoint the exact date that the gene erupted so dramatically in Europe, then they could confirm whether it was caused by the plague. The work took months as they devised a mathematical formula. So I think we might be able to get an estimate of the age if we look at nearby markers and essentially see the nature of the association between the mutation and variation at nearby sites. I think that'll work. I'm just, I'm a little worried about the variance, but on the other hand, that would be That's going to give us information. at the time, yeah. That's absolutely right. It's going to happen. I just want to say something. 
So a lot of you are watching this. Okay, this is interesting. So they're looking for this gene. Okay, I see that it has to do with fats and cholesterol, kind of the way COVID has to do with that, kind of the way Ebola has to do with that weight. Because I'm about to blow your mind today when you understand what Delta 32 mutation really is the answer to. I have a connection to time. The basic... Uh, O'Brien and Goldstein analyzed the samples from O'Brien's worldwide database. They were able, by looking at minute differences between the genes, to back-calculate the date of the original mutation. They discovered that the gene exploded in the European population roughly 700 years ago, just at the time the Black Death came to Europe. The jigsaw was complete. The date was spot on. The mystery of those who had walked free from their plague-ridden homes now had an explanation. All the signs pointed to the mutant gene, Delta 32, to explain the mysterious mechanism that blocked the plague bacteria from entering the human cell. But there was a further puzzle. Many at Eme had totally resisted the plague. But if the gene did block out the plague bacteria, then why did some people get sick, only to stage a remarkable recovery? There was an intriguing explanation. Elizabeth Hancock had never contracted the plague, even though she was constantly exposed to infection. To completely block the lethal bacteria, she must have had two copies of the protective gene, one inherited from each of her parents. But what happened to people who had only inherited one copy of the gene? Margaret Blackwell actually contracted plague, but recovered. Could it be that she had just one copy of Delta 32, which enabled her to fight back and throw off the disease? Maybe that individuals with one copy of Delta 32 actually postpone the onset of death. And in that meantime, the armament of the immune system, which has many different uh, battalions, if you will, could be mounting an immune response sufficient to clear out the, uh, uh, the bacterium so that the individual actually survives rather than dies. The evidence was now overwhelming that this tiny genetic mistake called Delta 32 protected generations of families from the plague. But there was to be an even more extraordinary twist in the story of Delta 32. What life-saving legacy did these European survivors pass on to their descendants? All the evidence showed that a rogue gene protected many of our European ancestors from the world's most deadly disease, plague. If it had, then the survivors would have passed down in their bloodline a unique ability to fight disease. Could this gene be helping us to fight new infections? There was one disease where scientists were beginning to see chilling parallels with the Black Death the modern-day scourge of AIDS. San Francisco, 1980. 
more gay people than ever before spilled out onto the streets to celebrate their lifestyle. People were no longer ashamed to be gay. It was a time of euphoria. Among the crowd was Steve Crow. There were more gay people. There were, uh, there were more people because it was the baby boom generation. And we had more of an opportunity to express ourselves. Part of that was very much sexual expression. So in that sense, it was hedonistic. We had music, we had disco, we had drugs, and we could dance all night and, and fuck all day. But doctors had already seen signs of a mysterious and shocking new disease that was affecting gay men. Dark purple blotches appeared on the skin. The lymph nodes swelled. Something sinister had arrived. Steve Crone was oblivious to the looming menace. For him and his circle of friends, the leisurely California afternoons need not be troubled by some obscure disease. Then his lover, Jerry, got sick. No one knew what it was. And it was an emotional nightmare because he was sick for 15 months and there was never a diagnosis. So you had somebody who was, um, who went blind, who would lost 30 pounds in weight, who had a uh, cytomegalovirus in their liver, who had all kinds of uh, horrific kinds of tests. So there was a, a mystery of suddenly this person went from being 34 years old and totally vital and a gymnast and handsome and healthy and, and then was suddenly like living with an 85-year-old man. You just keep maintaining this positive picture of them as a healthy person until you finally turn a corner and to be honest, I actually was an astrologist who told me he was going to die. I was never a doctor. Jerry died on March the 4th, 1982. He was the fifth person in America to die of what was to become known as AIDS. Gay San Francisco continued to party, blissfully unaware that the disease was spread by a lethal virus. Crone watched in horror as it swept relentlessly through his circle of friends. You can't really process that many people dying all the time. So if you're going to a funeral, you know, if somebody's dying every month or every, every year, there maybe I would have lost, over the course of that decade, I lost about 70 to 80 people. So you're talking about a lot of funerals and a lot of memorials, and there was really nobody left. Over the last two decades, there have been 18 million deaths from AIDS worldwide. The culprit, the HIV virus, has become the biggest killer in the Western world since the Black Death. Like the plague, AIDS devastated the immune system. But like plague, there was a mystery. Some people seemed better able to resist the virus than others. O'Brien was fascinated by the parallels. Comparing the two diseases, O'Brien discovered that the HIV virus was tricking the immune system just like the plague. It was targeting exactly the same white blood cells, the very cells sent to destroy it and hijacking them. Once inside the cell, the virus could totally wipe out the body's immune response. 
So something like a cytokine storm. So cancer, HIV, the plague, COVID, and swine flu. Now you're going to understand all these little things that I've been saying over the three years. I've always said that I was very proud to lose my federal work study at the CDC because I made one finding in writing, which doesn't even exist. Like they deleted my report, aside from the fact that I said, don't use porcine cells because people are getting pig DNA and the Muslims wouldn't be very happy with that, knowing that they're getting vaccines and they're getting a little bit of pig in them. That's total haram for them. But hopefully this can help you come to what I am going to show you today that's going to freak you out. And no one's spoken about this ever. The bacteria that causes plague specifically target precisely the same cells that HIV enters. So those connections are indirect, but they're very much similar to finding two very, very similar kinds of murders occurring in a very small town in Pennsylvania at the same time, and us wondering whether or not the same person committed the murder. The murder mystery might have remained unsolved if it were not for Steve Crone. Stunned by the loss of his lover and all his close friends, Crone had assumed that it would only be a matter of time before he himself developed the disease. His lifestyle had been no different from theirs. Why should he be special? The only other experience you could find where all of your friends are dying around you of the same age would be if you were in the war and your platoon is wiped out. The thought was that I would eventually get AIDS and die. But remarkably, Crone did not get AIDS. Test after test showed the same result, negative for HIV. I was mentioning this question of how was I to a family relative at some party, and they said, well, why don't they test you then? They'd study other children when you find that everybody in the family has a disease, and this one child doesn't get the disease. Why don't they study that child? Why aren't they doing that with you? And I thought, gee, that sounds makes sense. Why aren't they studying me? So it just sort of inspired me to make another round of phone calls to doctors and see if there were any trials out there. And there weren't. I really did a lot of phone work. There weren't any trials because there are numbers you can call HIV trial. There was nobody studying HIV negative men. And so until I found uh, Bill Paxton. Young, switched on and determined to make his mark on the AIDS story, Paxton persuaded his lab chief at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in New York to let him try a new experiment. His idea was to analyze the blood of people who were very high risk for HIV but had never caught the disease, to see if it could give any clues to how the virus worked. He was looking for blood from people like Steve. The center had no study of people who were exposed to HIV but who had remained negative. Being in New York, you knew those people were there. I mean, you met those people. That's because they already knew from the 70s. Paxton took a sample from Crohn's blood and bombarded it with HIV virus. 3,000 times the normal amount of HIV needed to infect a cell. 
an amazing thing happened. In spite of the massive dose of HIV, Steve's cells did not become infected. Uh, red colors in the well indicate the amount of viral activity. And as you see, as you go across here, these individuals have a viral reduction. And then you come to Steve's cells, because white blood cells, and you see there's no red, those wells stay white, suggesting there's no viral replication. Paxton assumed he had made a mistake. We thought maybe we'd infected the culture with bacteria or whatever, so we went back to Steve. But again, it was the same result. We went back again, again, same result. Something was blocking the virus from getting into Steve's cells. But what was it? If Paxton could find out, then he would have solved the biggest mystery of AIDS, why some people were resistant to the disease. Looking at the DNA, Paxton instantly saw something striking. Unlike people who were infected with HIV, Steve's cells had a blocking mechanism. The virus simply couldn't enter the cell. Further tests confirmed that this was caused by a mutant gene. It was Delta 32. There was now a cast iron explanation for the fact that Crohn had never caught HIV. It wasn't just luck. It was the mutant gene Delta 32 which had been passed down to him by his European ancestors. I took it in a very uh, cautious manner, but it was also very exciting to be able to tell my family I may never be able to catch AIDS. That was, the, that was like the first reaction, I think, for myself, really to tell my nieces and nephews and my sisters that they would not have to go through what I saw some of the other families go through. I think that was the greatest bonus. So Steve is immune because he has this mysterious mutation or allele of a very uh, specific receptor. That is key. And that's something, and I'm going to tell you this, I don't think anyone's realized. Uh, so in our cells, as I've said, there are many uh, receptors. Receptors are basically antennas that allow things to bind, enter your cell, and trigger cascades of events within the cell. Now, there's it's, it's in the form of a protein, obviously. And there are many types of such receptors. There are specific types of receptors uh, that are called chemokine receptors. Uh, they are what people uh, like to buckle them into as G protein link receptors. They hit off big cascades of events that happen. And um, for receptors, they've only found 11. Supposedly, I think there's 13, but only 11 are official. All right. And so um, peripheral blood derived dendritic cells. Um, blood derived dendritic cells, I say this again, are the okay, so let me let me let me go back. CCR5, right? It's a, a chemokine um, receptor type five, right? 
is the one that is considered to be key for HIV infection and disease. And it is also, just going to put this out here, it is also responsible for cancer, SARS, influenza, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and not influenza. That's that's wrong. Influenza. Well, okay. It is the Spanish flu. Okay, and many other types of diseases, usually that travel through the blood or specific cells like um, that have ACE two receptors. You know, goblet cells. Just juicy cells that your intestines have. And it's called CCR5. Well, there's many versions of CCR5. I mean, there's so many people, it can mutate everywhere, right? Well, that's exactly what this Delta 32 mutation is. It's a mutation or a version of the CCR5 gene that's a little bit edited, which makes it supersonic hard, meaning your T-cells, your macrophages, your microglia, your isonophils, dendritic cells, all of them are like Superman. Nothing sticks. Nothing can get in. Nothing can go in. Now, when I was uh, doing my research on the H1N1 vaccine in 2008, I determined and noticed that the vaccines that we have been using for the flu have been increasing lipid concentrations, but also silencing variations of C CCR5. I specifically stated that, which means that the vaccines are supposed to train you, but the receptor that's supposed to help remove them, this armor that your white blood cells have, is silence. Remember, these edits that are being done to your DNA are sometimes snip, copy, paste, right? Whatever they have in them, paste or they silence a gene from being expressed, meaning as your DNA is unzipping that part, the zipper snags and it can't come out. So by silencing CCR5 receptors, right, it is causing concern. Well, it's not CCR5 receptors as a whole, but the mutations of it. So anything that is off this imprint is not allowed to exist kind of thing. So it's silencing it. And I had put that in my report that I found that critical as many viral bloodborne diseases or any viruses that can travel through the blood and or bacterial infections would then be an issue for people that have this, these, uh, alleles of the CCR5. So <laughs> it goes back to, damn, they're trying to cause disruptions in the way we can break down fats, cholesterol, which is key for Ebola, COVID, HIV, right? 
but they're also trying to genetically alter us so that we're not expressing the genes that our body has or may have to fight these things. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about this because CCR5 is responsible for many things, even cancer. Expressions of CCR5 actually increase the likelihood of breast or prostate cancer. Oh, look at that. Wait a minute. Your reproductive type cells, I'm just pointing that out. And so um, inhibitors are supposed to help patients that have these types of cells that have these uh, populations of CCR5. See, they bucket them as one rather than say it's a hindered CCR5 or it's a CCR5 that open up, it opens up the floodgates. It's a receptor. Check this out. This is why there's so many versions and what they call alleles. So let's pretend that there's a gate, right? And that's the receptor. Now, in order to get into that gate, you need a key. Now, we they said Delta 32. I, I'm telling you that there's changes up to hundreds of different variations within our genetic code that crosstalk with other variations of our genetic code to make things come up. This is why they'll never be able to determine with specificity what causes what. Your body is your own temple and it serves you. So uh, you have, say, a hundred of them, right? Let's say the hardest gate of CCR5 to go through is a hundred. Then your key is going to be like very intricate, very, very hard, extremely difficult to duplicate. You're going to need like the best diamond thief ever to be able to open up that gate and enter your cell. Whereas CCR5-1, uh, you don't even need a key. You just push the door and you're in. You see? So receptors can have high specificity or lower specificity. And it's all about binding positions within the protein. So it doesn't mean that, like, the, like that guy that was immune, he had CCR5, right? But he had the Delta 32 mutation, which probably means because proteins are like little swirly spirals when you actually see them um, and magnify them. So it would mean that the binding center would be in such an obscure place that nothing could mimic it. It has to be the perfect puzzle piece in order to enter. So um, it means that Delta 33, Delta 31 may be, you know, curled a little bit like this or bent a little bit like this where HIV can find its way to latch on and open up that gate. Make sense? So every single variation changes the way the puzzle pieces fit to be able to unlock that door and get in. And all, all vaccines that we have been getting have been altering these efficacy points, specifically that of CCR5, which is quite interesting considering that, uh, you know, people that uh, get vaccines are usually more prone to be sick. Coupled with the fact, I'd be very interested to see how many vegetarians or vegans are the ones that are, hmm, that are going faster. And, and that's because we lack the uh, innate immunity that 
um, carnivorous activities provide. So I thought I would uh, give you that little tidbit to kind of simmer on for a bit because uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, I, I found it fascinating and, um, and something worth sharing so that people can see that even when, with Ebola coming, right, that um, it's going to be fine. Again, if we know this, right, if we know this, you know that other people know this. So we should be fine, right? Because we're with you. Um, all of us together, united, man, we're unstoppable. So on that note, I'm going to get some coffee and we're going to be shifting gears, talking Nazis and Justice Scalia. I'll see you guys in just a bit. I have climbed highest mountain. I have run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls. These city walls. Indeed, indeed. A united America is an unstoppable America. They have done everything that their old playbook from the early 1900s um, dictated that they do, which is divide us. So that way we fall. Put us up against each other. They did this. I mean, you know who's going to trial? Is it tomorrow or the day after? The man that had his knee on George Floyd. Well, hello, George. There you are. So this is what it comes down to. Their plan has always been the same. Okay? Always been the same. Again, rinse and repeat. It's just that every century that this has been applied to, every century that this has been applied to, is just the more upgraded version. You know, just a more upgraded version. So like I said this week, you don't want to look at the news. <laughs> really, you don't. Maybe you can watch some country country life cooking or something like that. That's my, my, my eldest daughter actually um, uh, mentioned that. And I watch it when I go to bed. The only thing that you should be paying attention to is what the president is telling you this week. Next week, it's kind of this. Hold on. Next week's anthem. Next week's anthem. Oh, hold on. Let's see, where is it? Let's see, where is it? Mm, it's this one. Hot in, so hot in here. Yep. That's next week. Things are about to heat up like nobody's business. <sighs> With delay, but more than welcome. 
gives more time for preparation, I would assume. So now I thought it's important for us to visit a discussion, a discussion about original intent. It's quite interesting. Take a listen. Galea, why is it important um, to tie current decisions to the framers' views uh, in your view? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't care a fig for the framers. I, I care for the people that ratified the Constitution. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't believe in, in original intent. I believe in uh, original meaning. What, what was the meaning of the, of the Constitution when the people ratified it? Uh, you quoted Jefferson uh, that uh, uh, the uh, the validity of government depends upon the consent of the governed, and uh, you find that consent in what the people agreed to. So, what the people agreed to when they adopted the Constitution, what they agreed to when they adopted the Bill of Rights, is what ought to govern us. Now, the Bill of Rights is, as I have said, in a sense, anti-democratic in that it prevents the current majority from doing what it would like to do. But in another sense, it is quite democratic. The Bill of Rights was adopted, after all, democratically. It was the people self-limiting uh, their, uh, their power. Uh, now, the meaning of that, whether it, uh, for example, you know, whether, whether it prohibits uh, the death penalty, whether the Eighth Amendment that... Uh, uh, prohibits cruel and unusual punishments, uh, forbids the death penalty. There is no doubt that no American ever voted for that when, when they uh, uh, voted to ratify the, uh, the Eighth Amendment. The, the, the death, penalty, death was the penalty for all felonies. It was the definition of a felony. It, it, it's why we have Western movies, because... Uh, Horse thieving was a felony, and uh, you know we wouldn't have had Western movies without that. Uh, so to to say that nowadays, well, things are different, and we think the death penalty is a horrible thing, and therefore, since we think so, it's 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 prohibited to the to the people. That is not being faithful to to the will of the people. Um, states are free to adopt it or to to refuse to adopt it, to repeal it. But to say that there's something in the Constitution that requires that they abolish it is simply uh, not following the, uh, the will of the governed. <clears throat> and Justice Breyer, you've written that our Constitution begins with the words, we the people, not we the people of 1787. Why is that an important distinct distinction in your view? I think, as I've asked myself, I think it's interesting this event in part because it, it suggests where Justice Scalia and I are tremendous agreement. I mean, the members of this court are unanimous in 30 to 40 percent of the cases. The five fours are only a few, maybe 25 percent. And uh, those issues are typically issues, since I think that's our job, is in a sense to patrol the boundaries of the Constitution. We're there, it's a, it's a document that, that, that creates a government. And it was supposed to create a government that would work. And that kind of workable democracy was supposed to last a long time. But our job is to apply the words that 
created the government, and not just those that protect liberty, though there's some important ones that do that, to circumstances today. And we're likely to hear cases that are at the boundary. Otherwise, what's the case doing here, if the answer is so obvious? So it's hardly surprising that people don't agree on many of these cases, where there are good arguments on both sides. But now I'm getting to your question, because what you really want to know is why in so many cases are we on different sides? <laughs> and that is a question I ask myself. And I think the answer in part is this. And this is why I think we both would say this document is meant to govern people from now indefinitely, they said in 1787. So it has to last. And that we read into their intent. It's there. That's what they wanted. And I read it into the meaning of the Constitution. And how do we get there? There's where we might differ. I think when we read language in any document, whether it's a statute or the Constitution, in any difficult case, a judge will read the words, one. We'll look at the history, two. We'll look to the traditions surrounding the words, what does habeas corpus mean? That's three. We'll look at precedent, that's four. We'll look to see what the purpose or the value is underlying that particular phrase, that's five. And we'll six, look at the consequences of deciding one way or another through the lens of those values or purposes. I think we all do that. And I think if I can characterize Justice Scalia, he's happier when he's only looking at the first four and I'm happier when I'm looking at the last two. <laughs> and when I say happier, I don't just mean psychologically happy, but that I think that by looking at those last two things, purposes or values and consequences viewed in light of the purposes, that we can better carry out that initial intent that this document will in fact govern a changing society as society changes over the course of centuries. Now, I don't want to put words in Justice Scalia's mouth, but I think my approach makes him very nervous <laughs> because I yeah, it does, because as you change it, because things change, the document changes and it no longer holds its original intent. Hence, this conversation. I think that he's afraid I, or if not me, others who follow this approach will end up subjecting their subjective ideas, substituting those subjective, substituting those subjective ideas for something objective. And that's risky. Uh -huh. He can confirm what. See, that's the problem. Now, subjective ideas, objective ideas. I want to go um, quickly to um, talk about the Nazis. But we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about how they rose and why they rose and what they were rising for. This is interessante. A big work. It's natural that they won't come to, uh, won't go to the to the Haydn family they will go to Ottogar so we talked about original intent in the constitution now you're going to find out the original intent of the nazis this is going to be a little bit while you're listening to this i want you to think original intent 
But why would Otto Gar have made the cauldron for Albert Peach? Peach had made generous donations to Hitler as he bullied his way to power. Could the cauldron have been another gift to the Nazis? Tied up with this kind of thing is, is the whole notion of gift exchange. You give powerful gifts to powerful people to give yourself more power. As ever with this story, it was back to shady deals. The cauldron could have been a backhanded contribution to the Nazis. But what about the inventory? It provided two possible clues. The name of the cauldron's maker and its city of origin. Why would the Nazi party create a fake Celtic cauldron? In 1929, the SS had less than 300 members. By the end of 1939, they had over 200,000 true believers. Himmler needed a new religion for his rapidly growing army of black knights. In Himmler's worldview, he saw Christianity as uh, something which was created by Jews in order to weaken uh, the Germanic uh, Aryan superior people. Himmler thought the principle of Christian mercy had no place in the uncompromising and cruel belief system of the SS. He wanted to resurrect the lost religions of a pre-Christian Germany. To underpin these beliefs, he needed to validate the idea of the Germans as an ancient race. Fits very neatly. I mean, don't forget one of the, the things you're going to need if you're going to be developing this sort of new cod religion of, of you know, reaching for the stars and all that. You're going to need a, a liturgy and you're going to need liturgical objects. Himmler, Willigut and other high-ranking SS officers were looking to rewrite German history to suit their own needs. In 1935, Himmler set up a think tank called the Annenerbe. He used the Annenerbe organization to collect evidence for an alternative history in which the Germanic people played a central role, and he tried to combine uh, academic efforts with mystical ideas. This Society for Ancestral Research would produce their own publications and films detailing their findings from expeditions to far-flung locations like Iceland and Tibet. They go all over the world in search of proof of the ancient Nordic and Aryan heritage of the German people. Himmler's obsession with an ancient Germanic past could even have influenced the location for the new SS center at Vivelsborg. Its thought, his mystical advisor, Willigut, recommended the castle because of the surrounding area's significance in German history and folklore. The region in and around Wevelsburg is just steeped in Germanic history. It's the land of heroes. But there was something else that drew Himmler here. Just 30 miles from Wevelsburg, 
is a place that would later be turned into a Nazi cult site, the Externsteiner. The Externsteiner has temples that are again pagan. It has rock drawings and carvings that go back almost a thousand years that portray Ehrman souls, one of the very most revered symbols of the ancient Germanic people. The Ehrman soul is the great holy tree or pillar of pagan Germany. Villigut thought that this sacred site could provide evidence that would tie Germany to more ancient and important roots. In the early 1930s, a team of archaeologists began excavations to investigate the Externsteiner's history and prehistory for proof. They didn't get the evidence. This is very interesting because they said, well, we didn't find any evidence that really this place was a Germanic holy site, so we didn't care for that and we write what we want. At Wiebelsburg, pre-historians, genealogists, and scientists were drafted in to help support Himmler's vision. And according to the inventory, the cauldron also had a part to play. The Kimsey cauldron most definitely would have been a perfect fit because the imagery is ancient Celtic, Aryan, the source of imagery that was being embraced by Himmler. But what might the cauldron's role have been at Wiebelsburg? Could it have been the Holy Grail for Himmler's Black Camelot? This thing has some kind of magic. Whether white or black, one can't really be sure. To find out more, we have to travel back over 70 years to the dark days when Wiebelsburg was being rebuilt as the ideological center of the SS. Heinrich Himmler and his architects had developed a massively ambitious plan. They envisaged the castle as the new center of the Nazi world. We've got up on the screen plans that Himmler had, uh, had drawn up for Wevelsburg Castle so that when, when the war was won, they could get on with, with creating a, a sort of Nordic Vatican. At the center of this vast SS city was a three-quarter circle fortress with 18 towers and 60-foot walls. The castle that exists at the moment is a tiny fraction of, of the enormous circular construction that was going to be created. It looks to me here about uh, nearly a kilometre in diameter. To carry out his grand vision, Himmler needed workers. Agnes Bootner was a schoolgirl living in the village of Wiebelsburg at the time. Von da unten, da mussten die einen dicken Bruchstein auf die Schulter so mitnehmen und in Reihe und Glied marschieren und singen dabei. Und dann kamen aber immer zwei Wachsoldaten mit Hunden mit. Na, und wir durften denen auch kein Butterbrot geben, aber man hat es ja doch heimlich gemacht. So, ne? Ja, das durften sie dann schon, ne? Also das, das vergesse ich heute nicht. A concentration camp was built to house these slave laborers. They endured a nightmare existence to bring Himmler's fantasy to life. 
nearly 1,300 died. The role of Vivelsborg as an ideological school for SS officers began to change. The castle was envisaged as a site for ceremonies. SS weddings with pagan overtones and baptisms that shunned the Christian church were carried out, many with Villegut as high priest. Torchlit ceremonies celebrating the winter solstice replaced Christmas. Behind closed doors, Himmler could pursue his obsession. The creation of the Rebelsburg was a fulfillment of some of Himmler's eccentric personal dreams because he could actually go back to this um, ideas he developed as a young person, uh, this idea of sagas, of a of medieval world, of a lost Germanic world, and uh, in a way it was his playground. Himmler furnished his SS school with relics and artifacts that celebrated Germanic heritage. Himmler used uh, the castle as a kind of collection place for the treasure he got from the occupied regions during the war. And he had got a lot of paintings here, tapestries, carpets. It was yeah, a kind of treasury room for him. The Reichsfuhrer wasn't the only Nazi appropriating art and antiquities. wake of the Blitzkrieg, Europe's most precious objects were plundered in the name of the Third Reich. Teams of uh, SS personnel, uh, including members of the Ahnenerbe, followed behind the invading German armies, seizing the contents of museums and taking them back to Germany. Holy relics were also targeted. In the Hofburg Museum in Vienna was the Spear of Destiny. The Holy Lance said to have been used to pierce the side of Christ. One of the things that interested the Nazis in the Spear of Destiny was its ancient heritage that any ruler who is in possession of the Spear will be looked kindly upon by the gods. It's thought that Hitler believed that whoever owned the Spear would become the undisputed ruler of the world and that it was seized on his express orders. These relics were potent weapons of propaganda and could be used to legitimize the Third Reich. If the cauldron had been kept at Wevelsborg, how might it have been used by the SS? The setting of Wevelsborg Castle is Nazi ideological headquarters, particularly SS headquarters, that's where you would put it, that's where it would be, and that's where it would be a symbolic object of, of greatest power. Nineteen forty-one, the SS, Himmler's loyal knightly order, was taking over the world. Himmler was now in a position where he could turn Vivelsborg into whatever he wanted. Himmler was trying to create this idea of a a sort of knightly order, a bit like the Knights Templar or the Teuton order. He wanted the SS to have that same idea guiding them.
Himmler set about creating his own Camelot for his new Nazi knights. His rooms would be named after ancient chivalric heroes like King Arthur. The castle's focal point was a stone-lined chamber where the most senior SS officers were to meet. Well, this is the Supreme Leaders Hall, which is built in the former crypt of the castle. It is built in a kind of medieval architecture. You have got 12 columns here in this room. And we don't know exactly why the number 12 was uh, chosen by Himmler, but one interpretation is that he thought of King Arthur and his 12th knight. And he wanted to use this room to meet his highest SS men. There's even some speculation that he installed an oaken round table for these meetings. But it seems Himmler's obsession with Arthurian legend didn't end with this room. He began his own quest for the Holy Grail, the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper, said to possess miraculous powers. Himmler was obsessed about the Grail because he believed it would just validate the ancient Germanic origins of his people. Enlisted Otto Rahn, an Indiana Jones-style archaeologist, into the SS. Rahn would scour the Pyrenees for the Holy Chalice, but returned to Himmler empty-handed. Could the pagan-style Kimse cauldron have been a substitute grail? You don't make an object like that without having some sort of public purpose for it. it, it, it it's, a symbol of, it's a symbol of power. You're not going to keep it on the sideboard at home. It's going to be part of a display. I think it became a central part of, of some kind of series of semi-public or secret, but, but certainly mass rituals of one kind or another. Himmler clearly wanted to immortalize his place in history. He decided to build a crypt at his Camelot. Some claim that this is where Himmler and his most faithful 12 knights would be interred. This is the land of the dead. Well, this is the crypt. Above you have got the swastika symbol. So it was a very important room for the SS. And it should have been used for honoring death SS men. Well, we think that there, you can see in the middle of the floor, two gas pipes. It's thought that these pipes would fuel an eternal flame and that the death's head rings of fallen SS men, designed by Otto Gar, would be enshrined here. If the work had been completed, the crypt might have become a site for remembrance. We can have only uh, speculations uh, about what should have happened here. A death room kind of sounds like sacrifice room. So this is quite important is if you're thinking of original intent that's what you got to think about original intent because yes the nazis came to power by bullying themselves it was a uh you know it was never it wasn't started with evil in mind remember that and then it evolved into something greater than that 
They needed slaves. They needed targets. They needed empowerment. They needed to advance. And please do not mistaken their atrocities for any approval of what they did. But damn, they advanced like no other. The industrial age in the U.S. paled in comparison to the advancements they made in just three years. So think of original intent. Historian Peter Longerick has written extensively about Himmler and what went on at Wiewelsburg. He knows separating fact from fiction is no easy task. I think the idea is uh, popular that behind the history of the SS there is a second, a secret history, that um, they have their secret cults, their rituals, um, a secret code, and one can actually decipher uh, this uh, culture and actually find access to a, a, an alternative, a new history of the, of the SS. After the war, the full extent of the SS obsession with the occult came to light. Rumors of satanic rituals and even human sacrifice at Wiewelsburg ran rife. But historians continue to reject these claims. The occult theorists the Nazis indulged themselves with uh, can seem silly and almost sort of laughable. The reality is that they were being used to underpin the policies that led to the extermination of the Jews and which led to the persecution of gypsies and Slavs uh, and uh, you know, the disabled and so on within Germany. So they are deadly serious. As the war progressed, building at Wiewelsburg slowly ground to a halt. By March 1945, the Nazis and their warped world view were on the brink of defeat. Wiewelsburg was under threat. Himmler wanted to ensure that whatever went on at the castle, or was kept here, was going to remain secret. The castle's treasure was on the move. Anything that hadn't been removed in the days and weeks before and taken almost certainly south would have been looted, I think, the moment the Germans withdrew from the castle. So it's quite possible that, uh, that a, an item like the cauldron will have started to uh, make a journey somewhere. It's very portable and it's worth a lot of money. It was time to ensure that Himmler's sacred citadel would not fall into enemy hands. Himmler gave the order to blow up the castle. So one of his officers, Heinz Macher, had to come here and take some dynamite and put it into the castle. With the castle cleared, the order was given. Limited by a lack of explosives, the SS only blew up the southeast tower. They resorted to torching the fortress. When the US 3rd Infantry Division seized the grounds, Wiebelsborg was gutted. Macher had been ordered to bury the 9,000 death's head rings kept here. These were never found, nor was the cauldron. So we know some facts around the cauldron, but what still remains a mystery is how and why did it end up in a lake in Bavaria?
how and why did it end up in the lake in Bavaria? You know, it was three years ago that I, I, I believe that I said this on air. I know I've tweeted it many times and those that know me, I've talked about it many times, but um, I've mentioned the Ethiopians many times of how devout they are as Christians and how they have kept one of the most important relics hidden from those that wish to have it. I mean, you know, I saw that someone while listening and watching this um, said, well, the Vatican was silent on this. Yes, they were. The Vatican was silent. They sit there and say, we'll protect it and we will protect you. The one thing that the Vatican has always wanted to obtain, one thing, is a relic that people say exists now. It's a box. People call it the Ark of the Covenant. It's a square, but it's not a black square. It's a yellow square, cube, housed in a box. Apparently, people that had touched it, you know, would die instantly if they weren't read correctly by it. So people couldn't touch inside this ark, this, this box, this chest it was in. Because this yellow cube thing that has immense power would almost instantly kill people because they weren't worthy. Hence, I've said this many times, the Ethiopians, they are the loudest when it comes to the resurrection. I, I, I urge any of you during the Orthodox Easter Sunday, if there is an Ethiopian uh, Orthodox community in the area, I, I kid you not, you should go Saturday night around, you know, 1045, 11 o'clock at night um, for, you know, on a Saturday right before their Sunday, Easter Sunday to see it. It's loud, it's joyous, they celebrate with drums, it's just incredible. These people have churches carved in the walls of cliffs. They are extremely devout. And they have kept things hidden like no other. Now Friday, I want to talk to you about... Um, <laughs> So yesterday, those of you that have downloaded the stereo app, and, and the reason that I uh, toyed with it was it's becoming a, a, an avenue where free speech is actually happening. Now the app claims that, oh, if you get so many listens, you get put into a drawing for a contest. Yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, that's not going to happen. It's all lefty stuff. But it's interesting to see the conversations that people have. So Gavin and I have been doing a nightly show, um, pretty much talking about stuff we talk about anyway. And um, yesterday he kind of let the cat out of the bag of what I wanted to talk about on Friday, because today I was going to introduce you, as I have, to original intent. And these mysterious objects that great governments and organizations wish to have. Because tomorrow we're going to be talking about Saturn a little bit. I think it's very important we talk about Saturn. I've, I've introduced Saturn. 
I played the song of Saturn for you. But I think it's important we talk about another cube, not a yellow one housed in a, in a chest hidden away somewhere in Ethiopia, but a black one. A black cube. They're everywhere. Ever been to Mecca? One of the biggest black cubes I've ever seen. And you have to ask yourself, what is that? So, original intent. Original intent is key because it keeps consistency in anyone's message. Original intent of the Constitution was that it survive and be the backbone of our government. Yet, uh, for some reason, justices believe that they are better than the framers and that they should change it. Then why call it a constitution if it's no longer the same? The Nazis had a goal. What was their original intent? To please. To please who? The world domination wasn't so much to dominate the world but in the 30s and the 40s, there were some interesting meetings that had occurred. Interesting discussions, interesting treaties that were signed. And so began the race. The race of how they would find favor. Who would find favor? Boy, are they wrong. If you were a parent and you gave your child a country, piece of land, and said, here are some people, I want you to make the best of it. And you come back after 100, 200 years, let's say, and you see that the people are not happy. They simply exist to serve, they're like slaves, to serve the very few. But because they are slaves, look, we're keeping the land pretty, we're making sure we can have nice fish, but we regulate those too. Uh, we're free of disease because we said so. We created the diseases, we controlled them, and now we have answers to everything. Look, look, look. And as a parent, you're looking, you're like, what the heck, man? No one's happy. These people were walking dead. They're walking dead. This isn't going to make me happy. But for some reason, you know, this goes back to, what is it called when people, um, oh, Stockholm Syndrome, right? When you love or admire your perpetrator, just think about that for a second. Let's just leave it like that for a sec. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right there on that one. So original intent. I think the framers had it right. I mean, if you were a mom or a dad and you let your kid take this chunk of land and, you know, make the best of it, you would love to come back to people being happy and, 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 and enjoying their land and making babies and prospering and, and, and making art and music and, right? Wouldn't you like that? You would be pissed if you came back and your kid had all these people sleeping in barracks and then these little few people who were in charge of all these people were, were sleeping on feathers that were being fluffed every minute by people that lived in barracks. You'd be pissed. You'd be like, wait a minute, why'd you pick them and not them? Well, why aren't they equal? 
Oh, because they help me. So they serve us, you know, they're like, we don't need to eat the animals of the land or the fish or the plants. You just eat them, recycle them. And that way we have less impact on this planet that you love so much, mommy. And it's like, um, no, again, think back to original intent. When we talk Nazis, when we talk constitution, when we talk kingdoms, when we talk empires, when we talk legacies, think of original intent. What was the original intent? Original intent. That's the key. So having that conversation of original intent, I want you to just listen. This is, this is pretty interesting where again, Justice Breyer and Scalia talk about theories of applying the Constitution to certain cases. You're going to say, how did that tie in? Just listen carefully to the arguments made by two people that are on the opposite spectrum. Because the original intent of actions is uh, 90% of the product. Now, you're going to say, well, no one does thing. The road to, to hell is paved with good intentions. Indeed it is. But they may look like good intentions on the surface, but are they really good intentions? What is the actual intention? The original intent. Listen to this. This is pretty cool. I think this is one of my favorite discussions. If you're asking about fundamental uh, method of interpretation, I think you're asking about uh, the major division, uh, not just uh, uh, between the justices on the court, but, but in, uh, uh, in American uh, jurisprudence generally. That is, there are those who think that the Constitution is to be interpreted in such a way to as to keep it up to date. That is to say, it does not, oh, it does not mean today what it meant when it was adopted. Some of its provisions change in order to keep up with the times. Uh, my, my friend Justice Breyer uh, has, has that view. Uh, the other view, which is held by people who are called originalists, and I'm one of them, is that the Constitution doesn't change. If you want to change it, there is an amendment provision. Uh, amend it. It's not up to the Supreme Court to write a new Constitution by deciding that uh, things that, uh, that never were there all of a sudden are there. I'm, I'm putting it rather tendentiously, I think. But uh, uh, those are the two basic, uh, basic approaches, the evolutionary approach or the approach that look in 1791, what is 1791? Why is that a significant date for the Constitution? I believe in 1791, the Bill of Rights was created. Right on the nose. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> as I started to say, uh, an originalist would say, look, when the Eighth Amendment was adopted in 1791, the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. The death penalty was not a cruel and unusual punishment. There's no doubt that it wasn't. The death penalty was the penalty for every felony. It was the definition of a felony, of crime punishable by death. 
So, you know, it's easy for me to say the death penalty may be a very bad idea. The people don't have to have it. If they don't like it, they can abolish it. But don't come to me and say that the Constitution doesn't permit it because in 1791, when the people voted to prohibit cruel and unusual punishments, they didn't. This is not what they were talking about. Okay, that, that's an originalist approach. I, I take no view on whether the, whether the death penalty is a good idea or a bad idea. But if the people don't want it, they're fully able to uh, abolish it by, uh, by legislation. You look, it's not quite the people who are perhaps don't hold this originalist view say the meaning of the Constitution changes. I think there is a large area of agreement. For example, it says two senators. Now, I don't care how desirable it is to have six or to have none. Two means two. It meant two in the year minus 1,500. It'll mean two in the year 10,000. But I think Justice Scalia will also agree that words in the Commerce Clause, for example, which says that Congress has the power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce, or words of the First Amendment. Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech. Huh. What is the freedom of speech? Ah. What is interstate commerce? Ah. There were no automobiles in 1781, 81, 91, 89, 87. You pick 80, your year. There 80. were no automobiles at that time. 89 for the Commerce 89. Clause. <laughs> <laughs> They, and they didn't even have uh, uh, internet. They didn't even have television. So I think probably we both agree that even though there was no such thing in 1789, 91, whatever year you want there, still this phrase applies. The world has changed. Now, yeah, here's the area of disagreement. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Be before you go on. on. Before you go on. And that's not really giving the words a new meaning. It's just saying that new phenomena have come into being, which are embraced within the former meaning. It, it, it's quite something different, however, to say that the death penalty, which did exist then, the people knew what it was, and the people did not vote to abolish it when they adopted the Eighth Amendment. It's quite something different to say it is now covered by the Eighth Amendment. It's not, it's not a new phenomenon. Anyway, go on. No, but that's, that's quite, now we're getting to a part which is actually rather difficult because I will probably think to myself, whether I say it or not, in many of these cases, I will think, well, how do I know the way in which the First Amendment applies to cable television? For example, to take a real case from many years ago, when Congress passed a law that said that cable television owners must devote some of their space to carrying over-the-air broadcasters, even though they don't want to. How does that fall within the First Amendment? So when I get into these real cases, I probably will say what's key is there was a value, there was an objective phrased in quite general terms that existed in 1789 and, and 91 and exists in unchanged form today. The value, 
the basic purpose, the objective. And then I will look to see how that applies. So to go to a real case where, in fact, the court held that that cruel and unusual punishment clause forbids the execution of those who commit a serious crime of murder, for example, under the age of 18, we said they couldn't be executed. It was not the fact that in 1791, probably there were executions of 17-year-olds. I'm sure there were. But the value that underlies the cruel and unusual punishment clause, is it cruel? Is it unusual? Those things look around today to see how society today works out what is cruel, what is unusual. And society there may have changed. It's not the values that's changed. It is the nature of society that's changed. And the fact that you picked a bad case, because in fact... <laughs> bad for who? For you or for... For you, of oh, course. Well, otherwise, you wouldn't bring it <laughs> I wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> right, that's, that's right. right. Uh, a majority of the, of the states that have the death penalty permitted it for someone who committed the crime when he was under 18, but it didn't make any difference to the court. The oh. court, being an evolutionist court, just said, we think that you shouldn't be able to execute anybody who was under the, under the age of 18. Now, again, I take no position on the merits of it. Maybe you shouldn't be able to, but the people are able to pass their own laws and abolish it. And it doesn't seem to me it ought to be up to five out of nine lawyers on this court to say, coast to coast, you can't uh, execute anybody uh, who, who committed a crime when he was under 18. The people, the people never voted for that limitation upon democracy. And, and that's what happens whenever you, whenever you impose a constitutional limitation, mostly from the Bill of Rights. What always happens is you are imposing a limitation on democracy. You are telling the people you can't do what you want to do. And my position is unless the people themselves voted that limitation upon democracy, uh, it, it's up to them. And that is a very, so when you get us together, we find at least three things that the other person says, which is very interesting, and four that we disagree with. <laughs> that is the, 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 the point here, too, the subtlety of this view where you look to conditions really in the world in light of the value is that it is complicated and subtle. For example, there are a large number of states that did have on the books statutes that said you can, you can execute someone under the age of 18, say a 17-year-old. But if you look at the number of states where such executions occurred, there were virtually none, very few, very few. And then if you looked around the world, and this was very controversial whether you should say this, but if you looked around the world, we were the only country in the world, indeed, in practice, that did such a thing. Is that relevant? Well, you know what the framers said about whether it's relevant? What do you think they said? Nothing. They told us nothing about it. Yeah, we don't care what other people are doing, basically. You see, we're going to revisit this conversation for the rest of it at a latter time. What I wanted you to see was two end opinions to understand why and what happened to um, Justice Scalia, because our Constitution has been under attack like no other for ages.
It always boils down to original intent on everything. Original intent. Was your intent ever this? You have to look at original intent for everything. Every single aspect, every single argument, every single law, you have to think of original intent. Original intent. Now, original intent of control of virus. Well, let me show you something. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Now, don't go getting scared and stuff. He's got us. Take a listen to this. And how it's impacting Florida. Another 5,400 positive tests were reported yesterday, but overall cases, hospitalizations, and deaths were down again last week. The percentage of new people testing positive also remains well below that critical 10% threshold. And while our situation is improving, we're seeing an increase in new strains of the coronavirus, which some experts say are more contagious. In Orange County, health leaders are reporting 17 cases of the variant from the UK. New Six's Ezie Castro has the latest. The Florida Department of Health says that there are now more than a dozen UK variant cases here in Orange County. The CDC reported nearly 600 cases in the state, which is why health officials want people to continue to take precaution. You're always concerned about the, the mutation of the virus itself. Because uh, it is, like we said before, more transmissible. Researchers are tracking just how variants of the coronavirus continues to spread around the country. Here in Florida, we saw a big jump in the UK strain with nearly 600 cases so far. Kent Donahue with the Florida Department of Health says 17 cases of the UK variant have been reported in Orange County. My understanding right now, Florida leads the uh, the U.S. in those variant cases. The CDC also reported five Brazilian variant cases and one South African variant in the state. One South African variant in the state. One South African variant in the state. All of the variants are thought to be possibly more contagious, but health officials say the vaccines do offer protection against them. We always should be concerned about different viruses. It doesn't have to be COVID, any virus out there. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the measles outbreak that was going on. People weren't getting vaccinated. So this is a little bit different because, you know, the vaccine is just now rolling out to certain groups and so forth. Even though overall cases of the coronavirus are going down, the health department says people still need to do what they can to avoid a spread of the virus. That includes getting the vaccine. You want to wear your mask, watch your distance, wash your hands, all that aspects. But also when you can, get vaccinated. When it's I would say just stay away from the tap water. I mean, they hacked that and nobody talked about it. So one South African stream. Damn. Dang. Ding, ding, ding. And now, you know, obviously, clowns like Olbermann, you know, who wrapped himself in an American flag, stupid tool. And then heathen Michael Moore. Texas, you don't want to have masks? Then we're not giving you vaccines because you're stupid. Well, you can keep your mask. You can double mask, triple mask, quadruple mask. No one gives a shit. If you want to wear a mask, wear it. If you don't, you don't. Those people that are wearing masks are safe, right? They work. So why the hell does everybody else have to wear it? You want to get a vaccine, go ahead and do it. 
I don't have to. I, what? You need to. I don't have to. Maybe I just want to die. But you need to protect other people that can't get the vaccine. Yeah, I'm one of them. So that's why I'm not getting it. I can't have the vaccine. This is it. This is what it's down to. And remember what I said. Ron Klain, the cabinet of Joe Biden, is profiting off of this. We talked about it. I was hoping that the journalists that come in and troll shit to get information, just like people keep, you didn't talk about Trump. No, I'm going to let them talk about Trump first. <laughs> I want you to go to your analysts, you know, because I see so many people posting other people's videos in, in my chat. And I'm like, why are you doing that? They don't even know what they're talking about. They just became experts. Why are you doing that? I kind of just, I'll wait for them to dig their own hole because the minute I talk about it, everyone's going to jump on that too. So rather than join it, I, I, I want people to, to do it themselves. I mean, you guys pretty much get it anyway, right? You understand what he said? Uh, South African strand. Damn. No shame whatsoever. Dang. This is pretty incredible watching this. It's incredible. Now we're going to quickly end today's show with um, a quick Q&A that happened here with um, Rand Paul. Give me a sec. About the January 6th event. You know that Christopher Ray said, no fake MAGA. <laughs> My gosh. My gosh. Don't watch news. I listen to like the, the, the breaking stuff and it drives me insane. Here we go. Senator, uh, Senator Paul, you're recognized uh, for your questions. I think there's a danger in analyzing this of spending too much time on January 6th and not enough time on the days and weeks and months leading up to this. I think on that day, it would probably be superhuman to have gotten the National Guard there in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. You might have, but it really, I think the Capitol would have been breached and we would have been coming in after the fact, no matter how good you were. I think really there's a judgment question about uh, whether or not we should have had more people there. In retrospect, we all agree there should have been more people there. But really, this is the judgment that should call into question predating that. Should we have had more Capitol Hill police there? My understanding is over a thousand Capitol Hill police that were either off duty or not here, you know, that could have and probably in retrospect, better judgment would have had them in there and we would have had riot lines and we might have prevented this from happening. So I think there's we can talk all we want about January 6th, but really it's the decision-making leading up to that. Someone made a bad judgment call and we need to be better prepared. If we're going to fix this in the future, it isn't about calling the National Guard out quicker. It's about having a thousand people standing there before the riot happens so the riot doesn't happen. So that's where the real mistake is. And I think we can get too bogged down on the details of January 6th and forget about what could have actually fixed this. Ms. Sanborn, in the investigation afterwards, did the FBI or any intelligence gathering entity of government subpoena, request, or issue a warrant for non-individualized phone and credit card records for anyone on Capitol Hill on January 6th? I don't have the specific answer to a specific subpoena, but I do know that we've issued lots of subpoenas and lots of search warrants as a result of each of those individuals. Yeah, and my question's not towards individuals. Like if you see John Smith on a video, I'm fine with looking at his records. My question is, did you have a generalized collection of data? 
one second. Do you guys remember what kind of job Jill Sanborn did before doing her job now? I want you to think about it. About people who were on the Hill on January 6th. Not that I'm aware of. I do know that we have used data, um, and this is reflected in some of the charging documents uh, that had geolocation data. Um, I don't know the background for what the underlying predicate was for that search warrant, but I do know that we obtained geolocation data. I just don't have the predicate. Do you understand the, the potential problem here if you gather everybody's data and then start searching through it and looking for people who might have done something wrong as opposed to the traditional law enforcement where we think John Smith is on a video breaking into the Capitol. Now we want to look at his records and see if he was there to help prove he was there. I think that's a reasonable request. But we have had articles written about the Bank of America sharing all of people's credit card information. What I need to know is, did you request it? Did you subpoena it? Did the Bank of America just decide they don't care about the privacy of their customers and just upload everybody's data? These are important questions. The Fourth Amendment's out there to protect against generalized searches. And I think you know the importance. Most people in law enforcement know the importance of you individualize. We're all fine with that. But there are even reports that elected members of Congress's phone calls, records, as well as credit card records are in some of this data. Have you heard of that or seen any of that? I, I don't have any specifics on that, sir. I'd happy to follow up. All right. Happy to follow up. Let me tell you about Ms. Sanborn. Ms. Sanborn um, came into the counterterrorism division from Phoenix. Uh, she was actually deployed in Kenya, Pakistan, um, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, just so you know. Um, <laughs> she was also responsible for that whole San Bernardino fake shit. And then she was put as head of the Minneapolis um, field office. I just uh, thought I would mention that. So if we want to get the answer, we just need to direct it to the director of the FBI. I mean, you can direct it. I'm happy to follow up and answer the question for you. Right. But you have not personally seen any of that or seen any uh, cross-referencing of records between a general category to try to find individuals as opposed to have an individual and then looking at data. No, again, sir, I don't know what went into the background for the application for the search warrant. So I would like to follow up and get you that detail. And I do know that... We did receive information from private partners. I'd also like to follow up on that specific detail about Bank of America for you as well. But you don't know the answer? I do not. Okay. Well, I think it's very important. Just, everybody wants to get to the bottom of this, but it's also very important that we not have some huge dragnet that everybody that went shopping on January 6th in D.C. is now a, a suspect and going to be charged with some kind of conspiracy that could be 20 years in prison. So as we do the investigation, it's important that those who committed violence are, are treated accordingly and giving significant penalties. But I think it's also important that we, those of us who have been for criminal justice reform, for poor underrepresented people in our cities, also want the same kind of justice here, that we're not charging people with crimes that are 20 years for doing something that was admittedly wrong and they should be punished for. But there's a difference between assaulting a policeman and causing bodily harm, which I think requires jail time, and you know, being a president at the Capitol. And I worry that if we're gonna look at everybody's phone shopping records and 20,000 people are here, I hope that's not what's going on is that we're looking for anybody in DC and we're gonna just develop a case out of nothing without having seen them actually commit some sort of crime. 
Yes, sir, totally understand. I would like to follow up on both of those. The, again, I, I'm not clear on what went into the application for the phone data. I do know we have phone data. I am aware of the Bank of America situation and would like to follow up in detail with you on that. Right. And my suspicion is it was gotten in a generalized way because we have very little concern for individual privacy anymore. And the warrant requirements and some of the court precedents allow the FBI to gather this. It's just something I object to, but gathering things in a large way, not specific to an individual, not specific to probable cause, and not specific to uh, someone alleged to have, have found a crime, but more a dragnet of, hey, let's just look at all the phone data on Capitol Hill. And I want you to know that there are at least some of us in this country who don't like that. Senator Hawley, uh, you are recognized uh, for your questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Madam Chair. Uh, thank you, uh, witnesses, for being here. General Walker, let me uh, start with you, if I could. You've testified uh, to several senators today that you faced restrictions for the deployment uh, of quick reaction of the quick reaction force that you had assembled, uh, and those are restrictions that you had not had to deal with before. If I got, is that broadly correct? That is correct. What is your understanding for why those restrictions were put in place? Well, Senator, it was never really explained to me. So it, uh, so I'm, I'm a major general. I don't question the people above me. Uh, uh, the Secretary of the Army is the Secretary of the Army. Secretary of Defense is the Secretary of Defense. So um, all I know is that it was, uh, I had restrictions that I, they were unusual to me. I hadn't had them in the past. Mr. Salisas, let me ask you uh, about your response to this. You, you said something earlier to Senator Portman that caught my attention. You said to him when he was asking about the same issue, you said that, and I'm quoting you now, several things happened in the spring, end quote, that may have led to these changes. What, what are you referring to there? Senator, what I'm referring to is there was a number of incidents in the spring where we had helicopters flying above U.S. citizens. We had spy planes, uh, RC-26 flying over folks. Uh, who were protesting. We also had uh, law enforcement officers that were in military uniforms, which sometimes confused people. Um, so when the new secretary came in, he wanted to make sure that he had guidance on making decisions. Now I will point out, Senator, that the Secretary of Defense is the only authority to order military personnel into civil disturbance operations. That is the Secretary of Defense. This is more clarifying information because it talks about not just civil disturbance. It talks about using helicopters, using planes, using types of equipment. That's why the memo was published was, was for that reason, because of the events in the spring. The Secretary of Defense wanted to have that authority vested in him. It was a very clear chain of command. It went from the Secretary of Defense to the Secretary of the Army to General Walker. Thank you for that answer. So if I understand you correctly, the, the events of the spring, which we're, we're all familiar with, I mean, we had, the, we had the attack on the White House where 60 Secret Service officers were injured. The president had to be evacuated into a bunker. Church across the street from the White House was lit on fire. We had the incidents in, in Portland, Oregon, where 277 federal officers were injured at the federal courthouse there. Uh, we had rioting in various other cities across the country, including in Washington. This, of course, was was politically controversial, the use of the National Guard in some of those incidents. So point to be made here is the president was under threat. Secret Service was under attack. The church right in front of the White House set on fire, but they said no National Guard. 
And now uh, they were like, why wasn't there? The use of the National Guard here in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Washington Post even reported on this. Uh, for instance, June the 4th, 2020, Humvees helicopters in the National Guard, D.C. officials pushed back on show of federal force on city streets. And then from January 4th, National Guard, this is still a post, National Guard activated for D.C. protests with more restraints than in June. So it, it, it's the picture here, Mr. Solis, if I got this right, that we, we had these, uh, we had riots, we had civil unrest in, in the summer. The National Guard was involved in, in some of these to some extent. That was politically controversial, as, as journalists at the time documented. I'm sure people watching this are very familiar with. That then led in, in some way to this reaction where, well, we're, we're going to be careful. We're going to be more careful. We're going we're gonna to put some restraints on how we deploy the guard that we previously haven't before. Is that, have I got that correct? You, you do, Senator. That, that's exactly what happened, Senator. Okay. Just to call into mind, we had a new secretary, too. Secretary Esper had left. Secretary Miller came in. He was aware of the events, and he wanted to make the decisions at his level. So wait a minute. Did you see what just was outed? Original intent. What was the original intent of those in D.C., including those in Congress, like that were complaining and in the Senate and D.C. mayor, D.C. police, Senate, Capitol Police? What was their concern? You bring in the National Guard. How dare you deploy them? These are just people. It doesn't matter if the president's under attack. You need to stop. But Pelosi's under attack, and why didn't you send the National Guard? Didn't you just say not to use force, but now you wanted to use force when you were upset of using force when the person that we're supposed to be protecting more, which is the President of the United States, was not as important as your capital? I'm trying to understand here. See, original intent of those attacks is key. So I'll leave you with that. And it's Wednesday, so we have, uh, you know, hump day, let's get it. See you on the other side. Nation army couldn't hold me back. They're gonna rip it up, taking their time right behind my back. And I'm talking to myself at night because I can't forget. Back and forth through my mind behind a cigarette. And the message coming from my eyes says, leave it Dreams are made of this Who 
am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to get used by you. Some of them want to abuse you. Some of them want to be abused. Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? Travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to get used by you. Some of them want to abuse you. Some of them want to be abused. I'm gonna witch it from this opera forevermore I'm gonna work the straw Make the sweat trip out of every pore And I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding right before the Lord And all the words are gonna bleed from me And I will think no more And the stains coming from my blood Tell me, go back home